So a few things. One is I think we need to be teaching kids the sort of core skills that are going to make them able to learn and apply anything they want. So how to actually look something up, how to differentiate quality information from misinformation, how to consume a lot of information and figure out quickly what's applicable, what do they need to dive deeper on, how to think critically, and also how to think flexibly and laterally. How can you read something in silo A and apply it to silo B, C, and D? So here's the big question. Have you ever been so financially frustrated from years of poor financial decisions only to wonder, why didn't they teach me in school anything about how to manage money? I've spent the last 20 years learning the secrets to how money really works and how to use it to get financially free on a goal to retire early. I've realized how much of an impact we could have on the world by teaching financial literacy, entrepreneurship, and a successful mindset. Join me as I interview some of the world's most successful business owners, coaches, and parents to get them to share their secrets on how you can not only learn, but teach these lessons to your kids to become financially free and impact your children's financial trajectory so they can avoid the frustration and go on to do great things. I'm Cody Laughlin, and this is the Money Talkers Podcast. Welcome back to Money Talkers with your host, Cody Laughlin. I have Brooke Smith here with me today. She is a PhD and an intuitive productivity coach and mindfulness expert. She helps entrepreneurs get the time and freedom they dreamed of when they started their business. Women come to the feeling of overwhelmed and unfulfilled with too much to do and not enough support. She works with them in designing the life and workflow that allows for them for growth, profit, and fun. In her prior career, she managed the Operational Excellence Program at a $1 billion a year business and trained hundreds of people to create streamlined, custom-delighted business processes. She has a PhD from the University of Toronto, an MBA from Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, and certifications in yoga instruction, therapeutic yoga, life coaching, wellness coaching, NLP, hypnotherapy, Lean Six Sigma, and project management. She has finished three ultramarathons, including one of the toughest 100K races on the East Coast. With that, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Cody. You sound like an overachiever. I am. That's how <laughs> I got into the productivity space. <laughs> so walk me through that. How did, how did, your, how did your story start um, to get to be an overachiever? How, do, how are you as, an, in a, uh, as a young Brooke? So young Brooke um, was basically just a nerd. I love learning and I wanted to learn all the things. So I went to college, I changed my major five times. Um, in my senior year, I was, you know, I was set to graduate with a degree in cognitive science and a minor in computer science. And I was taking a class about using cognitive brain imaging, functional MRI to better understand the human brain. And I asked a lot of questions about the methodology. The professor yelled at me and told me, Brooke, you're a very smart girl, but you are not a scientist. You need to go ask these questions somewhere else. So I went to grad school for philosophy of science. Um, found that I was also not cut out for academia and ended up taking a job at the federal government, which is what started me both learning how to sell, how to present, how to, how to wield influence in order to get things done. And it also is where I learned Lean Six Sigma and I became obsessed with efficiency and operations and really the elegance of doing something really 
really well in a streamlined way. Um, and then it's I started that, doing it, it's yoga. Funny that you, it's funny that you learned um, operational excellence in the government because I've done work with the government and I wouldn't describe them as operationally excellent most of the time. So maybe that was like a spark of like to find it. It's funny <laughs> you say that because um, what I'm about to say is true of both the government and private industry because I've worked in both. There is a lot of education about operational excellence and there are some pockets of really good implementation, but there's also a lot of misuse and even abuse of operational excellence programs in order to achieve other goals. Uh, sometimes it's to just to radically cut costs with no regard to future consequences. Sometimes it's used as a implement to help give leaders more control. You know, it's, um, I, I think that you were touching on a subject there where it's like, it, they used to say knowledge is power, right? Like that was always like the knowledge is power. Like if you know stuff, and it, honestly, today, it's knowledge is cheap. It's everywhere. <laughs> it it's it, it's we have more than we can process, and it seems like it's the action of taking the knowledge and implementation that doesn't happen most of the time. You know, because you, you were just talking about how uh, with oper there's operational execution available information all over the place, but it's actually executing it that becomes, I think, a lot of the challenges. Yep, and that's true in every area of life and business. I mean, you can go on Udemy and learn anything for $14.99, but figuring out how to apply it to yourself, how do you take these principles or these skills and actually apply them to better serve your customers, to be able to market and sell better, and to be able to do this all in a profitable, sustainable, scalable way, and the same thing goes for managing ourselves. You know, it's easy to pick up a book on mindfulness or to pick up a guided meditation, but how do we actually integrate these practices into our lives to make us better leaders? No, that's a great point. I was actually, so I was at a uh, kind of a dinner party thing um, a month or two ago, and uh, I was sitting around the table, a bunch of dads, you know, having a beer. And uh, one of the dads is like, man, I can't believe my son. He's so lazy. He doesn't want to learn anything. And I finally, I, I was sitting there and I was like thinking about it, you know, and I'm like, he doesn't have to learn anything. Like everything he wants to know is at a touch of a finger. Like we need to look at this different, you know, as parents, like they have different, like my kids consume things a thousand times different than I do. You know, if they want to learn something, they just look it up. Well, I didn't grow up in that situation. So now like it's a foreign thing to me, but it's just natural for them, you know? And so how do you, how do you square that to where you go from thinking about the next generation or I guess the current generation, <laughs> uh, they don't necessarily need to learn the information in the world, but they need to have execution with it. Like how, as a productivity person, like how do you kind of, how would you suggest for parents to be able to talk to their kids around that subject? Because I believe that gives them a huge leg up. Absolutely. So a few things. One is I think we need to be teaching kids the sort of core skills that are going to make them able to learn and apply anything they want. So how to actually look something up, how to differentiate quality information from misinformation, how to consume a lot of information and figure out quickly what's applicable, what do they need to dive deeper on? 
how to think critically and also how to think flexibly and laterally. How can you read something in silo A and apply it to silo B, C, and D? How do you do that? Well, <laughs> I know we've only got a little bit of time, yeah. but I mean, how do you, so how do you like teach a kid to think flexibly and laterally? Like I, I, that's a, that's an amazing yeah. kind of concept. I think by asking them to do it. Um, so I don't have kids. Um, I watch my niece and nephew sometimes, and I'm so excited that they're finally at the age where I can help them with their math homework. I'm, I'm just getting there too. I've got seven and nine. So <laughs> yeah. And the other thing we did uh, a lot this summer was we played a lot of Monopoly. Mm. And there were, what I found, I, the reason I thought playing Monopoly was so much fun is they really want to get good at it so they can beat their grandmother at it, who's very good at Monopoly. So we thought of it as Monopoly training. Like, okay, we're going we're gonna to play Monopoly. We're going to train so you get really good at this. And there are so many other lessons like buried in Monopoly, like how to manage oh. risk and how to, how to weigh the costs and benefits of a decision. And whenever we're in one of those sort of experiential learning places. So, you know, Monopoly, it's not just an opportunity to teach the optimum Monopoly strategy, but to teach it through analogies, to teach it through metaphors and things that they already know. So depending on their age and what they're interested in, it could be sports, it could be anything else that they like. And the more that people experience this type of lateral thinking through analogies and learning, oh, you can apply this thing from baseball to this situation in Monopoly, they're going to naturally develop a lot of those skills. Yeah, you know, and that's kind of the basis around being the money talkers, like that's where the name came from, was like the conversations that make it a normal situation to talk about money or entrepreneurship or successful mindsets. And that all kind of fits a monopoly. It's funny. It's like, that's my favorite game, <laughs> but um, you know, it's really just having those conversations that you don't realize that they're having a massive impact. Like you started talking about rental properties and mailbox money and um, you know, being able to negotiate with your fellow players. And like, there's a lot of skill sets built into there that uh that can be super applicable for a successful uh you know investing career i guess um but i i, I want to ask you i want to ask you one quick thing about that because i know that specifically you you generally work with women entrepreneurs correct i do okay so do you see different lessons that can be taught because i have a daughter and i have a son you know um you know, she's daddy's girl, uh, all the way. And, uh, but I want to be cognitive of the way that I approach teaching with her because it is different between the two of them. You know, um, I feel like my daughter spends a lot more time planning to execute and then she executes like a ninja. And then my son is more like a barbarian, like where there's like no planning to execute and like smash through things and then just figure out how to do it. And, and then he just gets it, you know, like it's, they, I feel like they approach things differently. And so I'm curious, like, as you know, your perspective dealing mainly with female entrepreneurs, cause I believe my daughter will be one, um, like some advice to approaching those kind of conversations. Yeah. So I think what you've observed from your son and daughter is pretty 
generalizable to, you know, boys and girls and to men and women, you know, in the workplace and in entrepreneurship. And it's that women are more likely to spend a lot of time planning, um, especially as women get older and sort of bump up against more obstacles and start to have their confidence eroded over time. It'll usually become some combination of procrastination, perfectionism, overthinking, indecision, imposter feelings, self-doubt. And those become the primary barrier that women need to get through in order to break through and get to their next level. And you're already seeing like the first signs of that in your daughter and that she's spending so much time planning, but when she executes, she executes like a boss. And then your son is almost the opposite. And this is, I think, fairly generalizable to the way that men operate both in the workplace and in business. They're really good at doing, doing, doing. So with men, often their learning opportunity or their growth opportunity is to get better at observing themselves doing so that they can make adjustments while they're in process. And they can make sure that as they're doing, 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 they're continually watching themselves observing their results and their outcomes so that they can make these little, just a few degree course corrections to make sure that all of this doing, doing, doing is getting them where they want to go. Yeah. I, uh, I have tried to instill that from the beginning, which is where like, I will talk to them about, you know, they, they either succeed or they learned a way not to do it. A really failure is only quitting, you know, of, of trying to achieve your goal and those kind of things. And so it's it's really weird like I'll hear them repeat that stuff sometimes to their friends and I just like honestly my heart like burst but um uh but you know I it's I I just see them they have different kind of approaches to a lot of things they have a lot of the same approaches but there's just some slight differences in there in the way that they will go after a problem or take a problem to heart you know it's uh it just it seems it seems quite a bit different so I'm curious like as you have kind of broken into mainly dealing on the female entrepreneur side, um, which I personally think we need a lot more of, um, you know, that, that go out there and and change things type of role. Um, what are some of the challenges you see that, um, female entrepreneurs are specifically facing? So one of the big ones that I see all over is that a lot of women entrepreneurs, when they're getting into the space, don't necessarily have the business education or experience. So they're really good at a specific craft. And I don't mean arts and crafts. Their craft might be speaking or coaching or even accounting or design. You know, they have very marketable skills that they are experts in and can serve at a high level. But they often don't have, just by nature of gender roles in our society, they are less likely to have experience in a leadership role, experience managing a team, experience managing a PL, experience marketing and selling, experience managing customers. So not just delivering the thing that they're really good at, but also managing the customer relationship and the customer experience through the whole thing. Because these are all moving pieces that need to come together to make a business successful. And just by virtue of the sort of dis, uh, distribution of like gender roles and careers in our culture, it is much more likely that an entrepreneur who's a man is going to come into his first business having some of these things already in place. And a woman is more likely to come into her first business having fewer of these things already in place. 
So as a girl boss dad, which I'm going to call myself, <laughs> um, how do I, how do I, uh, how do I help her with those things? So in terms of those external things, it's giving her exposure to all of the different parts of business. And I think growing up in an entrepreneurial family, she already has a huge advantage because she's getting exposure to business. And then the other part of that is helping her to believe in herself, helping her to learn her to trust her own judgment, to learn to trust her own knowledge, to trust her own expertise, and to not be afraid of failing, which it sounds like you're already instilling in both of your kids. Oh, she doesn't care. About <laughs> she, <laughs> she, we, me and my wife have to literally every week tell ourselves, like, it's going to serve her well later. Like, no one's going to run over <laughs> her. Like, and we have to just, like, talk ourselves back off the ledge with her sometimes. We've called her the little general since she was two. So, um, but no, I just, um, you know, I think about those things, like, she's also very exteriorly shelled tough and so like i want to make sure that as a dad and i'm sure there's some listening their moms and dads too that you know they want to i don't want her to fit in that box of like well i didn't have confidence or i didn't understand no one showed me these business things and it was harder for me like i don't i want to i want to attack those things now so that she has all the advantages that she's already going to have as a female entrepreneur and the fact that she's got the other side of it i want her to have the pieces that maybe to, that can help her give her a good footing or a good barrier or a good you know base so that she doesn't have the pieces that are difficult that you see as a pattern when you're dealing with female entrepreneurs right actually a huge part of that is really just, I don't want to call it world proofing, but helping her develop. And like you said, it sounds like she already has a lot of this, the resilience to withstand criticism and judgment and doubt from people around her. Because as we get older and we get bigger and we get more visible, all of this stuff becomes so much bigger and louder and stronger. And the women who are the most successful are the ones who just don't make it mean anything about them. You know, you don't have to shut it all out, but we have to know that whatever other people say or think about us is really just a reflection of them. And it doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong. It doesn't mean that we're not good enough. It doesn't mean that we got too big for our riches. It just means that other people have opinions. That they do. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, what do you see specifically um, where you help people with in their productivity pieces that would be something that you could start in, uh, maybe identifying and encouraging now with, well, give some advice to me, uh, knowing that I have, you know, the nine and seven year old and they're going to be growing up and um, how do I help them with productivity? Because I feel like it's been one of the skill sets that has really separated me in my life as I've got an evolved entrepreneur like it I can do one thing that means a lot more than a hundred things but I want to try to figure out ways to bring those conversations up or make them applicable with my kids um, so that they can have it a lot earlier than I did they don't have to have so many bumps on their head yeah so the three things that come up immediately are one to protect your brain take good care of your brain um, and I, I truly believe that it is never too early to start practicing mindfulness. I actually know some people who specifically teach mindfulness for parents and kids. And it's likely that it's easier to learn if you start young. You know, 
practice focusing, resisting the urge to multitask and give into distractions, all of these sort of good brain hygiene habits that we think about a lot as entrepreneurs, as adults, knowing that our, our mind is one of our biggest assets. But it's never too early to start making your kids aware you know, that any TV you watch is just going right into your brain. And that doesn't mean don't watch TV, but it does mean be discerning about what we put in. The second thing I think it's never too early to start is creating the habit of doing the things we commit to. So if we're not sure that we want to do something, don't commit to it. And if we commit to something, like if you write it down and put it on the list or schedule it in, we do it. We don't second guess. We don't hem and haw. We don't like negotiate with ourselves about what it is or when we're going to do it. If we write it down and we schedule it, we do it, period. And that's another habit that if we do it consistently, it becomes hardwired into our brains and it makes us very effective because we never have to bother wondering if we're actually going to do something. We don't waste time and energy negotiating with ourselves. I'm kind of laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry, because like I'm thinking about like I am I have developed that personal skill where like if I put something on my calendar, it's happening. And I've brought that from my businesses because I've been working out of the house for two years now into my house, which doesn't always translate really well. I'm kind of laughing because my wife's like, What's the big deal? It was like 20 minutes ago. We had it on the calendar. Like, we let's do it now. And I'm like, but it was 20 minutes ago. Like I, I, it's hard to let go of that. Uh, I'm because I understand it. Like, but we were going to go grocery shopping at six 30. Yeah. And, like at seven, and my husband like, isn't ready yeah. yet. And he's like, well, what I'll be ready in like an hour. And I'm like, but we were going to go at six 30. Like, <laughs> it was on the calendar. It was on the calendar. Was the calendar. <laughs> That's what I was laughing at too. I'm like, but it was on the calendar at six 30. Yeah. But what's the big deal? Like the big deal is it was on the calendar. So, you know, right. <laughs> and it's yeah. funny because that's something that you know i've learned to get more flexible about yeah is she, she she's the yin to my yang let's put it that way. Yes. <laughs> uh, my husband is a brilliant artist and is also the the yin to the yang portion of my personality <laughs> yeah our artist and executional <laughs> operationist <laughs> that's a little bit opposite but the last piece of advice i'd give you know, to, to parents and kids, and this is funny because it is actually tapping in a little bit more to the yin side, is to be discerning about what you say yes to and commit to in the first place. The idea of doing everything that we commit to only works if we're 100% sure about the stuff we're committing to. So that. be willing to say no, be willing to say not now, be willing to say, I don't know if that's right for me, and be willing to say, I don't want to go for the movies, but maybe we could go for a walk instead. You know, it's only committing to things that bring us joy, we genuinely want to do them, or they are that big thing that's actually going to move us forward. They're not busy work. They're not procrasta work. It's actually the big rock that's going to move us. Yeah. I always call it the big domino. I took it from a marketing concept where they said that if you could knock down the big domino, which is a buyer's complete objection, the real objection that they have, not the little the little ones where it's like, you know, let me think about it. Let me talk to my wife. Let me talk like all these little dominoes but if there's the big domino and you can figure it out you can knock it down well i've kind of taken that concept and, and applied it to business where it's like all right let me stop what would have the biggest impact on my business this week you know and maybe it's something like i don't know um changing merchant service providers right like nobody wants to do that it's awful 
you can't tell they move shells all over the place everyone tells you they're going to lower your payments like that you never know what the shell it's just a headache it's like buying a car you know it's like people just don't want to do it and then but maybe i'm processing a hundred thousand dollars a month with my credit card and it's costing me six thousand dollars a month when i could be paying two thousand dollars a month that's forty eight thousand dollars a year to the bottom line and i can't spend three hours doing that like i can you know and it's like taking these big the big domino which would be like the thing that would make the real difference that you don't generally it's something you don't want to do too it's always something you don't want to do yeah because if it was the big domino and you wanted to do it it would be done already yeah yeah so the big the big domino is usually like marketing for us like really that's the exciting fun part like i'm gonna go make a tiktok video and it's like you need to deal with your merchant services, man. <laughs> you know, like. And this might be one of the differences uh, between men and women in business. In For women, the big domino is almost always marketing and sales. Yeah. Um, because there's fear of visibility, you know, fear of being judged, you're too visible. There's fear of being objectified. There is, then there's this fear of selling, you know, a huge fear wow. of I, all I, things related to selling. Honestly, I've never thought of it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I can so, see it. I can see it because I've been in thousands of businesses with people and like I could see that though. Like I, I just never had anybody say like that that sales and marketing is the big domino most of the time on the female side because it's like you said, it's putting yourself out there. It's what if it doesn't work? Because you don't know. Yeah, and it, yeah, what if people say no? What if they judge me? What if they think I'm slimy and salesy and sleazy? Yeah, it's not sli- but it's, it's also not solvable. Maybe that's kind of where the people like accounting is solvable. You know, and right. like I've had a lot more female accountants than I, uh, and work for me than I have male, but it's like a solvable thing. And like, here, the work is done. I've got it complete. But the sales side of it, of like, hey, go out there and, and you know, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and shoot your shot and see what happens. You might fall on your face, right? <laughs> and that's the thing, some amount of failure is necessary in sales and marketing. Like it's- Oh, there's, virtually, I would say yeah. it's most necessary- yeah, because that's the only way you learn what message is going to stick is by trying all of the messages and seeing which. If one you're message. selling and people more people, if you're selling more people that are not buying from you, you're not talking to enough people. Exactly. You're being too cautious on who you're talking to because your sales rate should not be over fifty percent. <laughs> it's not you're you're not selling to enough people at that point, right? So it's it's funny. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure that that's my philosophy. And the reason I say that is that I like to look at the entire marketing and sales process holistically and look at conversion rates at every single step of the process. Because depending on the business and how people are selling, some people are selling on the phone, some people are just selling through an order form on a website, you know, some people are have a, a sales team. There are so many different ways to market and sell that on a business by business basis, it makes sense to have a lot of the conversions happening early in the process or a lot of the conversions happening later in the process in order to optimize that particular sales journey. I, I agree with you on the fact that you need to check conversions all the way down the line, but I definitely, if you have a 50% closing ratio on your, on, on prospects, you need more prospects because you are absolutely printing money at that point. Because if you can get above 50%, I mean, I don't dollar ad spend on Google, on Facebook ads, on wherever you're driving your marketing through. Like, there's a lot of business to be had. Yeah, <laughs> I, it, I, you know that, that's. But I, but the the tweak there you mentioned that was super important is that the conversion rates along the process. 
right? That if you get 1% better in four different touch points in the sales process, you're 4% better. If you look at what the dollar amount is converting to 4% better, the prospects that you have coming through the door, it's massive. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that I think that differs with different business models, of course, there's the cost of delivery. Yeah. So depending on the delivery cost and how profitable it is to actually deliver the thing in the first place, um, that can limit the benefits of selling more volume. Yeah. And it's also is the growth or sorry, is the goal unlimited scalable growth. Um, so a lot of my clients have businesses that by by sort of big entrepreneurship standards would be considered micro businesses or lifestyle businesses. They want to grow to a point, yeah. but, the, but infinite scalability isn't necessarily their goal. So for them, sometimes it's actually more important to find the best clients, the clients that are yeah. going to be the most fun to deliver to um, and the clients for whom it's actually going to be a really good experience to work with because they're not in a position where they're looking to scale exponentially. They're in a position where they're looking to grow. Oh, no, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Like I, I don't, I hate the, you know, (laughs) I hate the scaling concept and, and, and it's all it's cool. I had 110 employees at one point. And so like, I don't ever want to do that. Anything like that ever, ever again. (laughs) I'm like the anti that. So I'm not the hustle culture. I'm not in that part of it. Um, in the least bit, I 100% agree that like knowing where you want to be with the business is a step that I don't feel like most entrepreneurs as in my experiences, even have a clue that they've sat down and spend that time to do it. Right. You know, what, what is the ideal business size for you? What is the ideal profitability? What is the ideal customer you want to deal with? A lot of times yeah, we just take off running. What do you want to be doing every day? Yeah, like, exactly. Do you want to be spending your working time every day? Do you, do you want, want to, to own the business it? or do you want the business yeah. to own you? Right. Exactly. And even in that time, like, do you want to be spending that time managing a team? Do you want to be spending it interfacing with clients? Do you want to be spending it creating assets that are going to be sold over and over again? And this is a personal decision. It's not, there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah, 100%. But I don't think the, a lot of times it's even just the questions not asked. Exactly. That's the problem. And that's where we have these opportunities though, where I think with our kids to bring it back to the show is we don't need to retrain them later in life, which is what I feel like we're doing quite a bit with entrepreneurs, right? Is that it's like, you're retraining to have these thoughts like, whoa, stop. What do you want your business to look like? What do you want to make? How do you want to deliver it? Who do you want to work with? What do you want to spend your day doing? Like all these little pre-planning things. Like, I feel, I feel like if we could implement those habits younger, they don't have to be retrained. They're just kind of trained. (laughs) And it would be, it's a huge service to both our kids and to the future to be teaching them these skills because the school system and the way that kids are educated traditionally is designed to create employees. Yes. It's not designed to create entrepreneurs and it squashes a lot of the creativity and problem solving and critical thinking and entrepreneurial thinking from them. And that's why we end up retraining them as adults. Well, the good news is the way I see it is that that creates opportunity. Absolutely. Right? For the people that are intentionally, that are listening to podcasts like this, that are going out, that are thinking about these things with their kids. If all the kids are being trained 
this one particular way and you can do something a little different that's the like the definition of an entrepreneur right like it's like it, it's right in there of the whole wave is swimming one way and you're swimming the other way you know yeah that's exactly it and you're right it is an opportunity because kids who grow up with this kind of thinking are going to be able to hit the ground running they already have ideas they already know how to execute they already understand all of those levers that they need to move in order to optimize their business and make it successful. It's funny that I talk to parents that are entrepreneurs. Um, and uh, I always ask them like, well, do you think your kid's an entrepreneur? And they're always like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And like, I don't know if it's just like, it's like a pride thing where we <laughs> just like, I'm an entrepreneur <laughs> like that. I think differently. Like we take this like badge, you know? And then, so like, obviously we think our kids, have those same traits. I don't know if we're looking for the traits or if they come with the traits, like they develop them from watching us. Like I can't, I can't figure that one out yet. And I'm sure it's a mix of both. Yeah, it probably is. You know, they say more is caught than taught, right? Yeah, funny. It still amazes me that there is a huge percentage of people that just don't want to be entrepreneurs. And I know that that's coming from my very biased worldview. <laughs> no, there is. is. The majority of people don't <laughs> want that responsibility. You know, I try to tell people that are like up side hustles. They're like, oh, you know, like, I'm like, why don't you do more with your side hustle? And they're like, oh, I don't have time. I'm like, you work, what, you work 40 hours a week? They're like, yeah. I'm like, I'll do side hustle like an hour a day. I'm like, you're not ready to be an entrepreneur. Like you need to be able to live with 20 hours a day thinking about it because <laughs> you're going to think about when you're sleeping too, you know? And, it's funny, and that was the situation that actually got me into being a productivity expert because I had a corporate sales job. I had my coaching business, um, which was essentially my yoga business brought online, teaching mindfulness. And then I was training for ultra marathons and my husband and I were renovating one of our rental properties. And I was like, I need to fit all of this in. So I need to get really good at fitting all of this in. I, I love that you have like the two aspects of that, like the mindfulness and the productivity side, because generally you'll see one or the other, right? And that's what we see in personality types most of the time. It's like, well, no, like everything, the world's going to be, you know, it's very universe is ready for me. And the other side is like, I'm making the universe, you know, like, <laughs> so it's a, it's an interesting mix. And so what would be some of your advice that you could give to um, start to implement some mindfulness in the household? Yep. So the first thing is empty your mind, so like journal, download your thoughts. I do this usually twice a day, once in the morning and once at night. And it's so valuable. This also gets back to the idea of brain hygiene but we're using up a ton of working memory capacity if we are carrying around like our grocery list, our to-do list, all of these like fussy decisions that need to be made. And I've got to call the you know, pharmacy. Like Carrying all this around in our brains is inhibiting our ability both to be present in the right now and it's inhibiting our ability to do our best work. So just dump it out once or twice a day, get in a habit of dumping it out. So when you say journaling, what do you specifically mean like we could implement? Yep. So what I do, I have a, um, I just, I, I buy cheap notebooks wherever I find them. Sometimes they're like partially used notebooks at a thrift store and I just rip out these pages <laughs> and start um, because it's not, I'm not doing a spiritual process of like writing my dreams into reality. I am truly just emptying out my brain. So I sit down, I grab a pen and I write whatever's on my mind. And it's usually some mix of to-do list, 
things that I'm stressed about or thinking about, things that are on my mind, emotional things that I'm going through. Um, Conversations you want to have? Yup. Or conversations that I had. And now I'm like, oh, I said the wrong thing. They're going to hate me. It's so it's really all of it. Whatever is going on in your mind, write it down. And then the second thing I do is I go through it. I don't read every word, but what I do is I pull out anything that's actionable that I don't want to lose. So Mm. if I had any really good ideas while I was journaling, I transfer those to a separate document. And if I have any to-dos that I know are actionable, I transfer them. And then the rest, I just turn the page and set it aside because it's there if I ever need to reference it. But the truth is that I don't actually need to reference it. I just needed to write it down so that my brain stopped worrying about having to hold on to it. Yeah, it sounds like a release. That's exactly what it is. And sometimes it's emotional. Sometimes it's very practical. Sometimes it's just a to-do list of 50 items. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of maniacal about my calendar, and I because it's like like because well I'm like well if I need to do something in two weeks then I put it on the calendar and I don't think about it again until I want to go look at the calendar, and like I but I I've never kind of brain dumped before, but it sounds uh, relaxing <laughs> to me. It is. It's, it's, it can feel stressful at first, um, and I'm saying this in yeah. case anyone tries it and is like she said this was going to feel wonderful and it's awful. <laughs> it's okay. Um, it's normal for it to feel stressful at first because sometimes there's this element of I'm carrying this stuff around in my brain because I don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And as soon as I start writing Let, it down, yeah. we're pulling it all out and funneling it through our conscious awareness. Yeah, but the I more can see you that. Practice doing it the more it just becomes, it's like, do you make your kids clean out their backpacks at the end of the week or at the end of the month? It's like that for your brain. You're cleaning out your backpack or you're cleaning out your purse so that you're not carrying around like old receipts and gum wrappers and pens that don't work. (laughs) Amongst other things that they find. I don't know what they find, but (laughs) But um, thank you for that uh, tip because that's, I I think that's a... um, you know, I think it's a, I, I think about letting that off your shoulders because as an entrepreneur, you carry these things around. Like imagine it would be extremely helpful as an entrepreneur because there's always 90 things that you're thinking you can do and a to-do list or a list of getting it out on paper and going, all right, well, these three things will move the needle. You know, it goes back to kind of the big domino theory I was telling you earlier, like these three things would be the most impactful to my bottom line. I'm going to do those. You know, it's that identification part of it that's uh, a, a great exercise. And so um, we got to wrap up here, but where, um, let me ask up who should come find you and where do they find you at? Yeah. So women, especially if you are a curious, inquisitive, brainy woman in business, come find me, drbrooksmith.com or on Instagram at drbrooksmith. I have a free video series, Tame Your To-Do List. We will get the worst thing off your to-do list and you will feel good doing it. I'm going to write that down because I might suggest it to somebody. I don't know who. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, I'm actually going to go through it because I, I love the ability to knock out things. We can do so much more if we don't build it up to be harder to do. That's what is the thing is never as bad as all of the thinking about the thing. Yeah. Anyone who procrastinated their way through school writing term papers the night before they were due 
five minutes before but yeah (laughs) weeks thinking about it and dreading it and not enjoying all of the other things you're doing because it's hanging over your head yeah and then you sit down to write the paper and it's not actually that bad (laughs) true i uh I have taught myself that I'm just really good under pressure. That's an easy way to get out of it from being responsible to that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But thank you so much for coming to Money Talkers. We're going to hop off and then we're going to do the high impact series. Um, And uh, I appreciate you deep diving into those uh, specific challenges um, that you see in the female entrepreneurship and how we can help raise our young daughters uh, to be able to tackle them. So thank you for coming on Money Talkers with me. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Money Talkers with me, your host, Cody Laughlin. If you found this episode helpful in your pursuit of financial dominance, it really helps if you make sure to leave a five-star rating and share it with your friends or family members who could use good financial information and entrepreneurial success tips. I invite you to join the Money Talkers community Facebook group. Open Facebook and search for Money Talkers to join today. Follow us on Instagram at the Money Talkers for inspirational mindset posts, encouragement, and investing tips. And remember, the one thing you can do to change your kids' financial future is to start talking about money with them because you are a money talker.